With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter, the incredible Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? What's up, Leslie? It's very sad that we do this podcast all about, you know, new TV news, and so little happens in the TV biz. So this was pretty much another quiet week, right, Leslie? Oh, yeah. You know, Jake Gyllenhaal is the latest A-lister heading to TV, and will star in an HBO limited series. NCIS and Blue Bloods are returning to CBS. Jill Soloway revealed Jeffrey Tambor's transparent character will be, spoiler alert, killed off in the musical finale. YouTube canceled a bunch of originals as it plots another shift in its scripted strategy. Kate McKinnon will play Elizabeth Holmes in a limited series for Hulu. Sarah Gilbert's leaving the talk. And Barry and Amazon's Hannah were both renewed. I am definitely most interested in the uh, the Kate McKinnon Elizabeth Holmes project. That that to me seems like a rather perfect uh, combination of subject matter and and star. And based on the success of the act, I, I kind of dig some of what Hulu seems to be trying to do. So I am definitely ready for that one. And I'm very interested in the fact that Lauren Michaels is not producing that. So that remains something for us to keep an eye on. Well, too. I like the idea that they wouldn't be presumably treating it as a straight up comedy. What if with Kate McKinnon being clearly a fairly capable actress? So I, I like the idea that they would play it nearly straight. I don't think the story itself could be played thoroughly straight because it's so utterly ridiculous and right. stupid. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is the fact that you're going to get someone from SNL who continues to be on SNL and, and one of its MVPs who's doing a secondary project without Lauren, which kind of bucks the trend. It does, though. And again, it, this is the second of the Hulu projects with SNL cast regulars, what with A.D. Bryant on Shrill in sort of the in-between spaces. I'm astounded that Kate McKinnon is still on SNL at this point. I, I would have guessed she would have gone off to movie stardom long ago, and maybe this is just the next step in that direction. Well, a topic for another time. Well, with so much going on across the TV landscape, Dan and I are here on the podcast to go beyond those top headlines of the week and offer a deep dive into the latest news. With all that out of the way, let's get into our five topics this week. Number one. Leading off this week, Disney has formally unveiled its streaming plans with a nearly four-hour presentation to investors. The Mouse House's streaming platform, called Disney Plus, will launch November 12th and cost $6.99 a month, $69.99 for a year. At launch, Disney Plus will include a massive amount of library content, including Disney's 13 legacy titles, which I'm very excited about, as well as its entire roster of animated movies, all things Pixar, Marvel features, including Captain Marvel and Black Panther, the first two Star Wars trilogies, and tons of content from newly acquired asset National Geographic. And if all that wasn't enough, it will have a roster in the first year of 25 original series, including a slew of Marvel TV originals like Tom Hiddleston and Jeremy Renner reprising their roles in limited series. All that and the first live-action Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, will also be available at launch as will a host of feature film originals. Oh, and for good measure, Dan, all 660 episodes of The Simpsons. 30 seasons of The Simpsons available at launch. Dan, this is the kind of presentation I was expecting from Apple. Yeah, I don't really think of Apple as being a spectacularly 
self-reflective company. They, I think they kind of exist in their little bubble in Cupertino. But if there's anything penetrating the bubble, I have to imagine they look at responses to yesterday's Disney investor presentation and went, oh, okay, that was that was probably what we, we should have done. And I feel as if Apple needs, at this point, an, an entire reboot on that wasted afternoon that they spent and the millions that they spent to fly people in and to you know bring out all of these stars on the stage for ultimately absolutely nothing. If you ask me to remember a single one of the shows that Apple teased, I could probably tell you that one of them was produced by Steven Spielberg and that definitely Jennifer Aniston was in one of them, but I couldn't tell you that I want to see any of them. And then you had Disney just walk out and everyone thinks, oh, Apple is the one who knows how to do these wonderfully orchestrated presentations that they know how to make it into theatricality. And it was Disney that kind of built this amazing thing where they're like okay we got this we got this we got this oh and wait oh yeah we got this and then they finally get towards the end and like yeah all of that and oh yeah right uh -huh. the simpsons it's all coming 30 seasons and you're like wow i'll pay anything you want for this and then you're thinking okay are they going to pull an apple and are they going to be like okay we'll, we'll tell you what it costs later no 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 they they said exactly when it will premiere they gave a price point and after three hours of telling me what i could get for this my only reaction was yeah, okay, that, mm -hmm, yep, I, mm, I will definitely pay that amount of money. So it was it was such a total win for Disney in contrast to what a total loss it was for Apple. <laughs> yeah, and look, we should be clear that Apple still has its its standard September presentation to come. That will likely include more details about its plans for Apple TV Plus. Everything's got a plus. We're going to change our title to TV's Top 5 Plus. But look, you're right. You're absolutely right. But the big difference between Apple and Disney, and I think it's unfair to compare them, is Disney has decades of library content. Disney has the biggest assets in the world, Star Wars, Marvel, National Geographic, which they just added under the Fox deal. There's Pixar. There's just it has literally something for everyone. I mean, they had me at, at the original 13 classic Disney movies, which have been in the vault. And I mean, if you're a Disney fan, you're going to want this. If you're a Marvel fan, you're going to want this. If you love Star Wars, you're going to want this. If you've got kids, you're going to need this. I can't wait to buy this for my nieces, you know, and, and you're just getting started. Like yesterday, one of the, you know, we also on Thursday, we also heard a bunch of announcements. The Sandlot is getting a TV series. Love, Simon will be a TV series. They are leveraging their IP. And that is the biggest difference between what Disney Plus offers and what Apple doesn't have. As Tim Goodman, our colleague, has has written for a very long time, Apple has no library. Apple is relying heavily on content from its partners to appear underneath its originals. So great. Here's the morning show drama with Jan Aniston. Great. But right below that, do you want to watch Billions on Showtime? Sure. You click on it and then here it takes you, you, know, you can subscribe to Showtime and watch Billions through your Apple platform. But you're paying for all those extra add-ons. Disney has it all under one roof. You can't compare with that. You know, the bigger comparison is, for me, Disney to Netflix. And look, the minute that Disney announced this, look at the way they announced this. Back in August 2017, their announcement was, we are pulling our features from Netflix and we are launching a streaming platform. It was in the same, same announcement. So that tells you straight, this is where Disney sees its competition. So the one thing that Netflix hasn't been able to do is create brands similar to what Disney offers. It hasn't bought a Marvel. It hasn't doesn't have a Star Wars. It doesn't have a Pixar. What it does have, however, Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, Kenya Barris. This is what the Marvel TV experiment was supposed to be for them. And this is why you're starting to see a lot of outlets, including Netflix, look for properties that it can franchise and build into these massive multiple show 
feature type things, spinoffs, everything, animated shows. It's why everyone is looking for for content like that. And that's desperately what Netflix needs right now. I just think it's easier to compare it to Apple simply because oh, of, the, of the new people entering into the space. And it's also, it, it's funny and cute that you're giving Apple the benefit of the look at them, they're the underdog doubt, you know, that they're sort of like, oh, but they're, they don't have all of these assets. Poor little Apple. I'm not <laughs> considering they're the, they're the underdog. They're spending billions of dollars on original content. I think at this point, that's the best thing they have going for them. And it's probably the only thing they have going for them because I don't think they did anything at that presentation a couple weeks ago that suggested why their original programming is notable and why their TV brand is notable. Their point was, we're Apple, we got the big stars, neener, neener, you're going to buy us no matter what it is, at which point Disney I'm comes... sorry, I, I, you, you lost me with neener, neener. I'm sorry, this is what they were doing. And then at this point, Disney comes out and Disney just starts going through these assets. And they're just like, okay, yeah, we got Star Wars. Eh. We got Marvel. Eh. We got Pixar. We got all these Disney movies. I mean, Whatever. each one of those could be its own standalone platform. <laughs> Absolutely. And so the degree to which what Disney did was kind of big-dogging everyone else and reminding you of exactly how in this moment, I would say, let's be perfectly honest, that company is too big and too monopolistic, and that's a different conversation. And I think that's a concern that we can have down the road. But basically what Disney was saying is, ain't no one can top us if what we want to do is, is bring out all of our assets and say, yeah, come on. I mean, they that's the ridiculous thing. Disney doesn't even need to charge a lot for this. That's And that was the point they made is $6.99. We can do that. If that'll get us the subscriptions and get us to profitability, we can do it. There's no reason why they need to charge ten dollars or fifteen dollars and i think i if mean they, they will at some point that's oh, sure. at least the buzz among but, agencies but that doesn't i mean honestly that doesn't bother me a lot of people yesterday on twitter were like oh 6.99 but then they're gonna start raising the rates well of course that's what you yeah, do that's, that's what every, any company yeah that, that's what netflix did exactly it's what netflix did it doesn't bother me and it, and it really is it's the it's the frog in the pot of boiling water situation in which 100 if you just raise the rate on me by one dollar a year i am at no point ever going to flinch at that as long long as you keep giving me something I want to watch. And so if Disney decides that after one year they need to go up to 899, who on earth is going to flinch? And even right, if they but said, even after one year or two years, they're going to still have three or four different Star Wars live action shows. And they'll know what And they're going to continue to grow originals. I think they said they wanted something they're going to launch with something like 25 original TV series and the plan is to double that over 5 years. Dan, I need help in breaking news. Do you want to write breaking news with me? I do not, because as you may have heard, there are a lot of TV shows that also need to be reviewed, Leslie. Yes. So, so watching this, though, my biggest question was how it raised the bar, not really for Apple, because to me, Apple knocked itself out of the conversation. If Apple wants to get back in the conversation, Apple needs to get back in the conversation. They blew that. What I want to know is what this does to the Warner streaming service and how they're going to have to compete with this. What What is their game now? I mean, a bar has been raised. Make no mistake here. And I say that a lot, but this is like the biggest mic drop we've seen so far. And look, Warner Media has, it's expected to launch in the in the fourth quarter. You've got Kevin Riley, a season executive overseeing that with Bob Greenblatt above him. And they're in a distinct position where their crown jewel, HBO, already has a streaming platform of its own. So what are you going to do with that? How does that impact? Because that's, for Warner Media, HBO is the equivalent of Star Wars and Marvel, right? So, I mean, that's the big burning question is how do you, what do you do with that pre-existing service and how do you fold that in? And how do you do that without damaging HBO's brand? Because that brand is 
everything. So that's the big question right now that Warner Media has. And for Comcast, we, we know little to nothing about what, what they're going to do in 2020 when they launch. It's funny, though, because we've been talking about how ultimately what's going to happen in the streaming space is really going to be basically cable 2.0 and it's going to be bundles. But I think a lot of what we're now seeing is kind of the bundles within the bundles. And yesterday, the big sort of centerpiece of what Disney wanted to do was kind of presenting they, they led off specifically with ESPN Plus and with Hulu. And they I, they did some work clarifying what Hulu's brand is going to be going forward, which is something that we've discussed on the podcast. They sort of gave the suggestion, okay, that's where the originals are. That's where the the things that aren't the more branded adult. IP, somewhat more adults, et cetera. And so and that's where the FX content will live. This week, we saw a show that Disney Plus developed, the, the Zoe Kravitz-led reboot of High Fidelity, move to Hulu now that Disney is a, has 60% stake in that streaming platform. So I think you're really starting to see how Disney is approaching its branding when it comes to the, the varying streaming platforms that it has now. The, the longer question is, how, can both coexist once Comcast and everyone else buy out of Hulu? I would feel like it probably can, because as I may have mentioned, Disney's got more money than God. They can do whatever they want. But honestly. imagine Disney Plus with all that Hulu and FX content combined. Well, but then if they're, if they're trying to... That's Netflix. But, well, if they're trying to be sort of to set the clarification. So, okay, you go, okay, yes, Disney Plus is significantly cheaper than Netflix, but then they have not yet announced what the bundle, including ESPN and Hulu is. And so that, I assume, will be something much more comparable to Netflix and... Then you start looking, okay, what am I getting for that? A ton. I, I'm a sort literal of, ton. I'm sort of wondering what this means for CBS All Access, which has a much higher price point at this point and is for a couple shows that some people like maybe, but also mostly just the library of CBS content. But I can't justify why that should be more expensive than Disney+. Plus. It, it seems to me like it's less in terms of what I'm getting for that money. So I mean, is Showtime content bundled in, in all access? Uh, I no, can't remember. Not, not inherently. I mean, maybe there's an add-on for it, just like Hulu has an add-on and Apple's going to have an add-on, but it's not part of the basic price. The basic price also you know, doesn't include CW, which in theory it could just as easily, and it hasn't. So I, I feel as if CBS All Access, if it wants to stay in the game, is going to have to figure out a way to add more value than they currently have because... Discovery, Twilight Zone, a couple other things, and you like know, three more Star Trek shows, the good fight. You know, they're fine. I just don't think it. I don't think it's there. I don't think it's. I but don't there's think also it's the library is what you're getting that really for the originals. Like like with Apple is your value add. I mean, I just don't know how many people in this day and age are actually subscribe. I mean, people are subscribing to the services and I think they appreciate the library very clearly. I just don't know who's subscribing and I don't know whose initial subscription is for the library. I think the library is probably what keeps people there because they go, okay, well, I've watched whatever. I missed Big Bang Theory last night. Let me go watch. Yeah, I, I think I think it's I think it's additional and it's the thing that keeps people there. But I, I feel as if the new shows are still what moves the needle. But you know, guess what? We're gonna have a lot more to discuss. Yeah, this, on this is subject. only just beginning. And I mean, to me, the most interesting piece of this whole thing, and we alluded to it in, in the intro, is The Simpsons. I think that. When you see, you know, the mic drop announcement where Disney is saying, oh, by the way, as a by the way, Dan, 660 episodes like that's Disney strategy to keep that asset on Disney Plus. You know how much money the Simpsons library, 660 episodes. I can't stop saying that because it's so massive. Do you know what that library could could fetch in the open market? 
that's Disney turning their back on millions, possibly billions of dollars if they sold it to someone like Netflix. It's funny the the Simpsons World streaming site that the Simpsons were going to be on. That was such a big deal when they announced it. And it was such a big deal that it was going to be the centerpiece of the programming for FXX and all of that. And now to sort of realize, okay, clearly those are not the priorities anymore. You know, what does this mean for the Simpsons World site? What does this mean for FXX? Well, that part is developing. I know that the show will, Simpsons will continue to air on the linear networks. What it means for Simpsons World and the digital platforms, no one knows at this point. And I've checked in with FX people, Disney Plus people. It's fluid. No one knows. So speaking of things that are a little bit fluid, our next topic this week, we're going sexy with this. Leslie, let's talk about packaging fees and the ongoing feud between the Writers Guild and the Association of Talent Agencies. Number two. After an extension that came sort of at the 11th hour, maybe even 12th hour last week, uh, April 12th is now the the deadline for negotiations over, again, packaging fees. And according to the latest update, the major talent agencies, that would be WME, CAA, ICM, and UTA, according to uh, your notes, are offering to share revenues uh, generated from TV and film packaging fees and a settlement to avoid the prospect of thousands of writers firing their agents could come as early as April 13th. Leslie, lay the groundwork for where we are and why it's important to our listeners. I mean, this is basically our primer segment. So when there's more info to come, we won't have to talk about what a packaging fee is. So if you'll bear with us, this is kind of the, the primer on, on what the controversy is. So in a larger sense, packaging is the practice by an agency in which they team a showrunner, a script, and a star and or director, and then take that out to a studio or network. The best example of this is probably the first season of HBO's True Detective, which included a script by Nick Pizzolatto, had director Carrie Fukunawa attached, and stars Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, all in one package. Agencies took that out, or the agency took that out, and said, hey, who wants this? And of course, it ignited a bidding frenzy, and everyone wanted it, and HBO wound up, wound up landing it in a bidding war. At that point, agencies are paid a sizable fee by the studio or network that lands it for putting the package together. That's instead of charging clients their standard 10% commission. This is not a new practice, though the amount that the agencies are collecting from it has increased. So that's basically in a nutshell what a packaging fee is. Okay, so first breakdown why, and I feel like this is probably a little bit obvious, why agencies like this. Agencies like this because hit shows, like a true detective, can be more profitable to them this way. The packaging fees stick for the remainder of the show, even if someone like, say, director Kerry Fukunawa leaves the show. And they're attractive to a certain extent to clients, too, because they don't have to pay their commissions. They don't have to pay their 10%. So the issue, in a larger sense, is the WGA claims that agents have no incentive to negotiate for higher writer salaries if they're not working on commission. And the Guild also claims that agents are being paid by their clients' employers is a conflict of interest. And the package of packaging stands to benefit the agent more than it does to the actual client. And if people are looking for another primer that isn't from us but includes a good deal more swearing than we're going to do, I strongly recommend uh, David Simon's extensive uh, blog post about how he didn't know that his material was being packaged when Homicide was first taken out. David Simon, not a fan of packaging. Not a fan in the slightest. So if we do not reach a settlement this time around, is it just like Brexit and they're going to keep kicking it down the road over and over and over again to avoid doing anything? What happens? I mean, if 
The writers fire their agents. The timing of this couldn't be worse. You're at the tail end of pilot season, which is this is the point where all of the lit agents start trying to place their writer clients in writer's rooms. And all of these broadcast pilots that are, are trying to staff up and getting early buzz and positive reaction, or even some of the ones that probably aren't, they're all trying to staff all at the same time. That's, I mean, anywhere from what, 15, 20, 30 shows. Plus, you've got everything cable, everything streaming. It, you know, this is peak TV. This is year-round staffing season, but it's particularly heightened right now because of what the broadcast networks are doing. But this could impact that entire process. And the interesting piece of that is the WGA's solution is to do an automated website that will help you get staffed on a show. I mean... I'm trying to, to remain neutral on this because I have obviously have friends on both sides of the of, of the battle here. But that website seems kind of insane to me because you can't place like if I'm writer, and I fill out a, fill out that form. First of all, it asks me for my my gender and sexual orientation and a lot of stuff that that doesn't seem like that you should be asked. But if I fill that out and I get placed on a superhero show and I have no knowledge of superheroes, I mean, it, it's it's impersonal. It, you know, it, that's not how these things get, happen. I mean, agents pitch their clients for these shows. Here's why you should hire Leslie because she knows all about baseball and your show is about baseball. Like, okay, that's a, a home run. I was going to say slam dunk, but <laughs> I, I went for the bad part. Um, so, I mean, did. yeah, that that's, you know, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be a realistic solution. So it's a fluid situation and it could really have, have a big impact on a lot of writers. So unlike you, I actually, agents. unlike you, I actually don't have friends on, both sides. I don't know that I have any friends who are agents. No offense. And if you want to be my friend, agents, you can you can be in touch. I I, I always need new friends, uh, and my tendency is always to be much more union sympathetic and much more writer sympathetic. And I've been loving on Twitter what the writers have been doing to amplify other writers and the various, the various different hashtags that people have been using to promote young writers, for young writers to promote themselves, for established writers to lift up young writers and make sure that they're out there and getting more visibility. I, I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that probably people should be doing under general circumstances, yeah. but also in a general circumstance. Let's keep that going year round. The thing is when it's kind of year round and when all things are equal, then the business becomes competitive. And I think that in this brief situation, it isn't competitive in the same way because it's just kind of everyone trying to survive. And I think that has brought out a lot of equality or elevating from more established writers that I've really enjoyed seeing because, you know, in, in various social media, I follow both very established writers and also young up and coming writers. And it's been fun to watch some of that. And I wish it weren't born entirely of desperation. So I hope that this does not continue. Yeah, I think it's 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 a cool thing to see, even from this perspective, where, you know, writers lifting up other people and putting the spotlight on, on others who may not have been able to cut through or who don't have an agent yet. I mean, it, it's a cool thing to see. And, you know, in, in any industry, you know, journalists supporting other journalists and, you know, when in the fake news era, that's what it reminds me of. So anyway, this is a fluid situation and could very well change by the time this podcast is released. So it's something we're, we will continue to monitor and resurface. But uh, now you know what packaging fees are. <laughs> and aren't you happy you do? Yes. Number three. 
So for our next topic, we're going to introduce a new recurring segment in which we offer a check-in on the state of a specific network. As I like to say, it's a network check-in. And Dan, I think you have another name for it. Yes, Leslie will not allow me to call it uh, what the bleeps up with dot dot dot, because I feel like we've been doing this now pretty much regularly. And I think it's a good thing for us to be doing, to be sort of looking around the landscape and looking at different networks at different positions and going what the bleep is up with them. And so last week, for example, we, we asked what the bleep is up with Showtime, Epics, and uh, Stars. And so this week, we are looking at what the bleep is up with AMC. This week, AMC formally announced that it has picked up 10 episodes of a third series in the Walking Dead franchise. The untitled drama will revolve around two female protagonists and focus on the first generation to come of age in the apocalypse as viewers know it, per AMC's logline. It will begin production in the summer in Virginia for a debut in 2020. It was created by The Walking Dead Chief Content Officer Scott Gimple, whose job it is to expand the franchise, and longtime flagship writer Matt Negrette. These two, coincidentally, also wrote the Season 9 episode that sent Andrew Lincoln's Rick Grimes off via helicopter into parts unknown. It's unclear if the third spinoff, which joins Fear the Walking Dead at AMC, will be set in the same universe as the three Walking Dead movies that Lincoln is going to do for AMC. If that's not enough, AMC also announced this week that the fourth season of Preacher would be its last, as the cable network will also say farewell this year to dramas Into the Badlands and The Sun. Dan, AMC is really at a turning point, which is why I wanted to talk about them this week. But especially as the flagship is going to say farewell to breakout star Denai Guerrera, who will only be in a handful of episodes in season 10, this is a network that's at a turning point. It is honestly also still a network that's been at a turning point for several years. We, we've talked about how every time HBO has a big show that goes off the air, well, they had to do it already with The Sopranos. They, they've done it before many times. AMC had to figure out how to adjust its identity when Mad Men and Breaking Bad went off the air. And part of how they did that was with Better Call Saul. But then you have these whole years when Better Call Saul is like not on, like this year. It will not be back until 2020. And even best case scenario with Better Call Saul, when I talked with Peter Gould last year, he acknowledged that the show was closer to the end than to the beginning. And I think even that's, you know, an undersell. If I had to guess, I can't imagine it having more than two more years left in it just because it's not an endless story. And at a certain point, everyone is going to be too old to be believable as being in a prequel series to Breaking Bad. And, and so you've got these kind of, you've got the tent poles that AMC has, which is all of the darn Walking Dead stuff and whatever's happening in the Breaking Bad universe. Right. The movie that they're doing, with which they will have first and then we'll, we'll drop on Netflix. But then you have, AMC has had much less success in the other stuff. They, they keep producing it, but they also, they end up with a lot of, I would say, a disproportionate number of one and done or two and done shows relative to other cable networks of the same level. And so right. Dietland canceled after one feed the beast canceled after one uh, Feed the beast. Uh, and then going back Rubicon canceled after one. low winter sun, low winter sun canceled after one that some people don't even believe actually existed. And even the things that kind of, you know, stumble along into second seasons or fifth seasons like hell on wheels. <laughs> Helen Wheels was very popular with people's uncles and grandparents. It was. It was a show. It was a show that did not have a sexy young audience, but that absolutely had an old audience, relatively speaking. And I think I probably the Sun has roughly the same 
audience, but I watched every episode of the first season of The Sun. I don't know that I heard anyone talk about that show either when it was airing or subsequently, which just means whatever audience it had wasn't on Twitter, but whatever. But then you which look at maybe why it's ending with season two. And even I, I was even kind of surprised it went to season two. But but Preacher is a show that really when they launched it, they must have thought they had a, a buzzy show that was going to be big. And instead, it's become a show that's kind of disappearing with a with a real whimper and that did very little. You know, they you know, they got no they got no additional traction when Ruth Nega got an Oscar nomination, which ought to be the kind of thing that gives a visibility boost to a show. Yeah, they're they need more of the middle ground stuff and additional Walking Dead shows isn't going to solve that particular problem. <laughs> yeah. And they have an interesting pipeline. Look, they have season two of The Terror coming, which is an anthology and got some good buzz at the end of season one. Lodge 49 is coming. A lot of people like that show. I think you, you're you a big fan of Lodge oh, 49. Oh, I, love, right? I yeah. love Lodge 49, but I also know that it's a show that best case scenario runs three or four seasons as a critical darling well 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 below the radar that is that is not a foundational show that is that is barely a rounding out your lineup show it it is a very specialized very niche show which i do love and people should check it out but yeah that's that's not gonna reshape your network yeah and still and still on the bubble right now too you've got humans which is an, an acquisition so that that's awaiting a renewal and then up next nosferatu from joe hill starring zachary quinto due in june and next year, you got a Jason Siegel vehicle called Dispatches from Elsewhere. So, I mean, I don't know what's going on there. But what I do know is they also have an Orphan Black spinoff set in the same world without Tatiana Maslany attached in development. And they've got two really good execs now at, at the helm after Charlie Collier left to go run Fox. So you've got Sarah Burnett, who added, who already oversees BBC America. She added AMC and IFC. David Madden, who has had headed programming there, has been promoted under her. That's a good team of talented executives, and they were smart enough to to bring Killing Eve over for a simulcast with BBC, which really helped elevate the season two premiere audience. The show got an early season three renewal, and they're doing the same thing with they've got some other Sundance show. Um, it's, it's the Witch Show. I can never remember the title. A Discovery of Witches. There you go. But that's also getting another a second window on AMC as they're trying to kind of boost that. So I think we're kind of at the beginning of what's going to happen. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see some other show, some other shows jumping networks and getting a bigger platform on AMC. And then you have IFC, which is a sibling network that I have no idea what's going on over there. Well, and IFC does have some really, really good shows. And then you look at the ratings for them and their shows are typically at the very bottom of the cable ratings list. And some of that is because they've simply been marketed as kind of niche shows. Uh, but on the other hand, they've got really good shows. I don't think that there was ever any circumstance on earth under which Documentary Now was going to be a breakout hit. It is it is big and bold and nerdy. And if you are the audience for it, you already know it exists. But uh, but Brockmire continues to be a show that I just love. And, right, and no one's watching. And no one's watching it if you look at the actual ratings. And there's another one where if they could bring, if they could kind of pick and choose and bring over the best two half hours and try those out on AMC as well. But even then, I don't know how you're making a brand identity if your brand identity is bringing stuff over from another network's brand. And, and The Walking Dead. <laughs> and, and and The Walking Dead, and as long as we have Better Call Saul. Like, they have to already be trying to figure out what the Better Call Saul spinoff is and when it's set. Like, hey, look, if you want to bring me a Better Call Saul spinoff based around Ray Seahorn's Kim Wexler character that shows what Kim is doing in the time frame of Breaking Bad, 
I would probably watch that, but I don't know if that's a breakout hit. It's just a show that I would be but interested in watching. it's a female-driven show on a very male-leaning network, at least for now. I, I would hope that they are, in fact, already thinking of doing the Kim Wexler show because Dan, I would watch it. Dan will get a co-EP credit on I that. Would, I would watch the heck out of that and talk to Ray Seahorn frequently about it. But yeah, so like bringing over an, an orphan black <laughs> spinoff with no Tatiana Maslany, I, I could not have less interest in that right but if it's similar you know in in scope that's another star vehicle platform it, it is but they tried doing comparable things where they tried bringing over the male versions of the clone characters in later seasons of of orphan black and that did nothing for me so whatever it is i would be hugely skeptical that that would be a thing that most people would want or that it would be a thing i want i only want to speak for me here i yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I don't think we have an answer for yeah. what the bleep is up with no, but it's, AMC. It, right. But it's, you know, th this is a network check-in, right? This is what the current state of AMC is and, and we'll see what, what they do. I mean, it's, it's something to keep an eye on and look, Madden and Sarah Barnett are really good executives. So, and they have good taste and they've, you know, look, Killing Eve was, was Sarah Barnett. So good people running it. So we'll see what happens. For our fourth topic this week, let's get into the Game of Thrones weeds and what to expect from the final season. Number four. We're joined this week by THR's resident Game of Thrones expert, Josh Wiggler, who has been diving deep into every character on the show since January in his excellent Final Path series on the site. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Dan. Thank you guys for letting me out of my dungeon. I have been locked away. It's nice to see daylight for the first time in a while. This gives a very strange illusion of how we're recording this part of the podcast, Josh. I, I, I don't want to destroy the, the magic for the listeners, but so far as we know, you could still be in your dungeon. That's true. That's true. I was trying to make you guys seem like heroes, but, uh, you know, perhaps you are on the side of the Night King. We, we just never know. So, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being entirely unsaturated and 10 being bursting at the seams, how saturated or oversaturated are you at this moment on Game of Thrones content? We're breaking the meter. We are uh, we are well past 10 at this point. I am I am well and fully saturated. I am surviving by the skin of my teeth and on pure adrenaline and excitement for the rest of the world to, to really start hopping into the final season of Game of Thrones. You talked about it on the podcast last week, Dan, about seeing the episode in New York uh, at the premiere, and I did as well. So I just want to start talking about what we saw. That's where I'm at right now. Well, we're not spoiling stuff for the listeners. The spoiler talk we're going to do for your podcast, but this is going to be, let's say, spoiler, spoiler free for the new season. You know, if, if you aren't caught up, you may be in some yeah. trouble. But Josh, you know, to me, your Final Path series has been the ultimate refresher and a great preview of what to expect. And in those excellent Final Path stories, you've made some really bold predictions for what to expect from the final season. Jon Snow? Dead. My favorite character, Arya. I'm I'm so sorry, Leslie. I I do believe she will she will be deceased. Ah! I don't think she's gonna make it. I am gonna be. I don't. I, don't, I, don't, I, <laughs> I am gonna be really really miserable if that happens. So we will just be. That'll be the grumpiest podcast ever, where we just mourn Arya. Okay, keep in mind, listeners. To repeat, we do not know anything. We are not spoiling anything. How about Cersei? I expect that Cersei will will also be deceased. I don't see how this ends with Cersei still alive. And Tyrion? 
I have a really weird theory that he is going to be the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch by the end of this thing, but even I don't really buy it, so take that for, <laughs> for what it's worth. Maybe I've been in the mines for too long. So so does the series end with basically everyone in Westeros working together to construct a new dragon-sized Iron Throne, and one of the dragons will be sitting on the throne? Because that would be dumb. I like that theory. Yeah, <laughs> I, have, I, haven't, I haven't heard that one, but that feels fair. I mean, humanity's had it's time right i mean if if we can't get it right perhaps in the hands of the dragons uh, uh the the seven kingdoms will get the justice it deserves we would we would finally discover that that fantastic movie with gerard butler matthew mcconaughey and christian bale that it was always just a game of thrones sequel who knew rain rain of fire are we still talking about that in 2019 i don't believe we are frequently but we certainly are right here and right now everyone should watch rain of fire it is a it is a genuinely above average movie i'm not saying it's a way above average movie but it is totally above average i completely forgot gerard butler was even in that oh my god file, file this all under things i never expected to talk about during this podcast but let, let's get back on track here gentlemen Josh, it sounds like the final season is is going to be a slugfest. You've seen the premiere. What can you say about what to expect from that? I mean, is it going to be deadly? I I think so. I mean, there's there's six episodes left. It's 432 minutes is the official runtime of the final season. Which also is, the fact uh, that that which... was a news story that the final season is 432 minutes just shows you at how just how saturated the, the landscape is with Game of Thrones content. You know, if somebody is whispering the word Westeros, somebody is shouting it back at somebody else. You know, that's that's definitely where we are right now. But look, there's not a lot of time left on the show. We're entering the final season. I think the first episode is episode number 68 of the series, if I'm if I'm getting uh, if I'm getting that right. And it's it's going to be a quick run and there's a lot at stake. The entire series has been building toward this idea that these frozen ice monsters north of the wall are trying to bear down on humanity and raise the land and take it over for themselves. And when we last left off, you know, a year and a half ago or so at this point, they had made it into Westeros. That was the cliffhanger. And the the rest of the cast, the, the human cast, has all been uh, racing towards this one spot in Winterfell in the north. And that's a stone's throw away from where we last saw the White Walkers. We know there's going to be a huge battle sequence this season. There's reports about an episode that is basically just wall-to-wall battle. The entirety of the episode is just one huge action scene. I think it's going to be deadly. I think that we are going to lose more people than we will keep safe and happy. So I would brace yourselves accordingly to to lose some favorites along the way here for sure. There are so many characters and there are so many characters who are kind of on the front of our mind and the people who we know we're looking forward to seeing. Give me two or three characters who nobody is talking about who you hope we get to see at some point in this season. Oh my God, that we, that we hope to see at some point. I mean, I think that, I think that we'll see... We'll see everybody who's still alive to some degree. I think it, it's more, is the show going to have enough time to do justice to certain characters? Like, for instance, I want to spend some time with Varys. You know, I want to, I really want to, I want to make sure that we, as we're closing out Game of Thrones, are getting some time to hang out with Conleth Hill's character. And he's been so spectacular. He's one of the last, you know, political mover and shakers left on the board. And with so much attention on, having to fight the Night King and uh, is Jon Snow going to find out the truth about where he comes from and how is that tension going to play out with Daenerys 
all of those kind of high concept questions, who's going to sit on the Iron Throne, we're going to have to deal with all of that. But if we're not drilling down into the interpersonal stuff and having enough room for the character drama that has really propelled this series forward for so long, Varys being a chief engine for that for me, I'm going to be really bummed out. So I, I, I would say Varys is, is representative of a type of character that I do think could get really lost in the shuffle here. I think like Gwendolyn Christie as Brienne is another example of that. Just some of these characters who are fantastic in their own rights, but often play supporting roles to the to the larger narrative. With only six episodes left, I would be a little concerned about some of those people. Jerome Flynn as Braun, another example. I think that those are those are the types of people that you got to wonder, is the show going to, to do justice to as we're bringing the show in for a landing? So let, let's tie this all together and close out this segment. Josh, who wins the Iron Throne? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> who wins the Iron Throne? I mean, I I think I do think you know the the chalk pick is Daenerys Targaryen, right? Like you know, this has been her journey all series long. I think just to to play it safe, that has been my official pick as well. Uh, the person who's currently on the Iron Throne is Cersei Lannister. It would be a real uh, Debbie Downer of an ending if Cersei Lannister is still on the Iron Throne by the end of Game of Thrones. So I just don't see that happening. Like I said, Jon Snow, I think he's going to die. I don't think that he is going to make it. I think he will die again, even if he is the legitimate heir to the Iron Throne. I think that his destiny will be to to save the realm and not to rule the realm. But I think Daenerys, I think Daenerys will will get what she has quested for just in a in a fashion that that she didn't quite expect, losing people along the way, finding out that ruling is uh, a lot more of a challenge than she expected, connecting with Westeros a lot more challenging than she expected. But I think when all is said and done, I do expect that Daenerys will will be the one who is who is on top of this thing. Or there will be no Iron Throne is another popular theory, and I like that one too. Well, how much is your how much is your investment, honestly, in that as we're heading towards these last six episodes? Is that the thing? I don't want to say is that the thing you're watching for. But is that kind of your primary question or are you kind of journey oriented more than destination oriented in your viewership? Dan, I was and remain an enormous fan of Lost. And if that show did not teach me that it's about the journey and not the ending, then I don't know if I would ever learn that lesson. So I am a journeyman when it comes to Game of Thrones. I'm I'm hopeful that the ending satisfies, but the ending is going to satisfy me if the characters resolve in a way that's true to the characters, in a way that's true to the spirit of this show, which is often very brutal and, and very fair to the reality of running into a bad situation, you know, just because you're a hero doesn't mean you escape a bad situation with your life intact if you've walked into it. I'm hoping we get some of those red wedding level moments coming into the final season. But who sits on the Iron Throne? It only matters to me insofar as what does that say about David Benioff and Dan Weiss's philosophy about power, about the quest for power, and you know potentially uh, you know reflecting what George R. R. Martin's answer to that question is, as he had written the books and how he hopefully someday intends to wrap this series up. That's really it for me. I, I don't really care who it is if there's an Iron Throne. I mostly care about the quality of the questions that it raises is based on the answer of uh, how the, the the question of the power in Westeros resolves. That seems like a perfect place to wrap this segment, and we will definitely have you back on as we get towards or immediately after the finale. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh Wiggler. Thanks, friends. For extensive final season coverage, head to THR.com slash Game of Thrones, and be sure to catch Josh on THR's new genre TV-focused podcast, Series Regular, 
dropping every Wednesday and focused to start on, yep, you guessed it, the final season of Game of Thrones. Well, speaking of Game of Thrones, we wrap things up with our weekly Critics Corner segment. Number five. As Game of Thrones returns, there are just a handful of new series launching against it. The few new entries include Netflix's Jim Parsons produced comedy special and ABC's Bless This Mess, starring Lake Bell and Dax Shepard and produced by New Girl creator Liz Merriweather. Dan, what you got this week? Yeah, I think you I think you definitely put that correct. I think that the various networks looked at where Game of Thrones was in the schedule and said, yeah, we don't want to get in the way of people's marathon Game of Thrones catch up or rewatches. So this is a fairly light week the next six or seven days. Uh, You mentioned special produced by Jim Parsons, starring Ryan O'Connell. It's the story of an aspiring writer in Hollywood with cerebral policy, and it is the most notable thing I, I can say about the show. And it sounds like damning with faint praise, but it isn't is that it's an eight-episode first season in which every episode is between 11 and 17 minutes. And I spent so much of my life complaining about Netflix shows that are longer than they need to be. Or more episodes than they need to be. Or more episodes than they need to be, or just are, are simply taking advantage of the fact that Netflix apparently does not, for the most part, tell people no. And it is such a pleasure that either Netflix told them no on this, said, look, you're unproven, prove yourself to us, don't go over 17 minutes, but here, have at it. Or that the creators of the show, and Ryan O'Connell's basically the creator, simply said, this is what we, how we want to tell it. And it feels a little bit like a kind of proof of concept webisode. And that's not really the sort of thing that Netflix has ever done. But why shouldn't they do it? Why why shouldn't Netflix say, okay, we've got our hour-long shows that we just say, okay, fine, whatever, Jason Bateman, make your Ozark episodes run 67 minutes or 75 minutes. We don't care. Whatever. Don't bother lighting your scenes. Who cares? And then you can have the half-hour comedy. So it's like, whatever. If it goes 38 minutes, that's fine. I like the idea that they can have a show like this. So it, it's not great, but it has a lot of potential. It's very likable. It's, it's very like I've seen the first couple episodes. It's very fun. Yeah, it's... You find it funny. Well, not fun, but it's very it's very heartfelt and, and heart, it's very heartwarming. Okay, which I think that's absolutely correct. I, I didn't laugh very much at it. I, I, I think, smiled a lot. I think probably it really could use a little bit more refinement, top to bottom, really. But on the other hand, there's potential here, and it and it's likable, and it's easy, and you can get through it really fast. So there's a lot of advantages to that. I think the best thing someone could watch this weekend is probably the start of PBS's adaptation of Les Miserables, which has a fantastic cast, including Dominic West, David Yellowo, Lily Collins is really wonderful in it, Oscar winner Olivia Coleman playing the mistress of the house, who is every bit as scenery-chewing as you would want her to be, with a warning that she's not in the first episode, which premieres on Sunday. It was adapted by Andrew Davies, who has done a lot of these kind of huge doorstop adaptations, including War and Peace and Bleak House. This is This is what he does, and he does it very well and it's it's just an, a solid above average adaptation in that kind of masterpiece theater vein that we don't really see as often anymore and it's it's reassuring you 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 put together a strong a-list cast with strong a-list material give them six hours to tell a story they'll do it well so that's there and bless this mess is definitely a show that's premiering on abc this week <laughs> how do you really feel <laughs> i've only seen one episode so far and it 
has a little bit of potential, but based only on one episode, I don't really know. I have high hopes at some point to see a second episode before reviewing it because my review based on only the pilot is a shrug. Yeah. Well, Dan, this feels like a good point to wrap things up for the week. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And if you like this podcast, be sure to check out Wiggler's genre-focused series Regular and Scott Feinberg's Awards Chatter, which on Monday features Bodyguard star Richard Madden. Dan and I will be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. And if you like us, you should definitely rate us. And if you really like us, you should write reviews. Spread the word on Twitter or any of your favorite social media platforms. We like to chat with you. And if you have questions, comments, concerns, would like to participate in upcoming mailbags, we have yet to mention our email address in this podcast. It is tvstop5 at thr.com. Email us. We like to hear from you. Especially if you have comments about the Red Sox and their terrible start. God, you just had to... We almost made it to the end. Well, fine. Until next week, Leslie. <laughs> Until next week, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>